0: Om sahanavavatu sahana bhunaktu sahaviryam karavavahe tejasvinavadhi Vidvishavahay Om shanti 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 Om may the Lord protect us both teacher and taught together. May the Lord give us the results of our study together. May we... Uh, Attain vigor together. May our study be illuminating. May we not cavil at each other. Om, peace, peace, peace. So, in this Upanishad, in the Kathopanishad, what is the subject here? Yama has finally started instructing nachiketa in um, vedanta in the now, in the question which nachiketa had asked first he had asked in a general sense what happens after death the secret of death and um, that's a question of all humanity all of us we we would like to know and then uh, he makes it much more sharp much more precise much more philosophically correct technically correct in this uh, section where he asks That which is beyond the law of karma, which is beyond uh, uh, dharma and adharma, good and bad, that which is beyond cause and effect, um, which reality which you see, O Lord of Death, that which is beyond samsara, the absolute reality of this universe. Talk about that. And then Yama says, it is Om. All spiritual practices which people undergo are meant for this. For this is the ultimate truth he's going to talk about. And it is the symbol for that is om now om uh, is a symbol for the two phases of vedanta the first phase is the worship of what we uh, we might call god the god of religion the creator preserver destroyer of this universe the power that is um, omnipotent omniscient omnipresent um, all loving all beneficial the way we understand god in the theistic uh, traditions of the world all justice and the symbol for that is Om, and here you use Om in faith. Here it is it's, we we are taught that it is so. God exists, and we shall meditate on God. We shall um, center ourselves in God by the chanting of Om, by meditation on Om. Om is a symbol of the divine. But what divine? Um, Saguna Brahman, God. Now, the core of Vedanta, the second phase of Vedanta is the core of Vedanta, actual Vedanta, which is uh, self-inquiry. Om is also a symbol of that ultimate nature of ourselves. I am existence consciousness place. I am not this mortal flesh and blood. And this mortal flesh and blood is there. It's an appearance, but the reality of all of this, I am. I am Brahman. This is to be revealed. And for that also, Om is useful. So Om can be used in two ways. What are the two ways? One is the meditation on Om, the chanting of Om, using Om to worship Brahman. but which Brahman? Brahman as the creator, preserver, destroyer of the world, Saguna Brahman. Om is a method of worship. And the second use, the real use of Om, is as a method of inquiry, Atma vichara. How, how, how does that work? We did the whole mandukya karika on that. Om uh, as waking, dreaming, deep sleep a and the silence beyond a waking dreaming deep sleep and the consciousness underlying all of them the witness to the waking dreaming deep sleep the fourth all of this we did whole mandukya upanishad is about this the use of om as self inquiry which will show to us that we are brahman now <clears throat> this theme continues in the mantra number 17 let us read that the two uses of om Mantra number 17. Banam banam param banam loke This support or this method om this alambanam means support, something that you use for meditation. So this support is the best Sreshtam. This support is the supreme om is supreme om is the best why best why supreme we shall see gyatva knowing this support what is the result brahmaloke mahiyate one is glorified in brahmaloka in the world of brahma now what does this mean om is shrestham is the best why because prashasyatatamam the commentator says it is most highly praised in the Vedas so om is the most highly praised mantra in all the scriptures so it's the best support for meditation it's the best support for spiritual practice so om is the best mantra basically now om is a supreme mantra alambanam param it's a supreme mantra why supreme mantra because it is useful for uh, meditation on brahman is saguna brahman or god it's also useful for inquiry into the self and realization i am brahman the two uses of om both in the technical language of the commentator he says para para, vata, para para brahma brahma om is the supreme mantra because it is about para brahma that means sachidananda the, the reality and apara brahma that means uh, the uh, saguna brahman or the god of the universe both are indicated by om then Etad alambanam gyatwa. Knowing this mantra, one goes to Brahmaloka. Again, here two interpretations will be there. One, if you are using it for meditation on Brahman, on God, then gyatwa, knowing, literally translation of the Sanskrit, gyatwa is knowing. Here it will mean dhyatwa, meditating. Meditating on Om, one goes to Brahmaloka. Goes to Brahmaloka means after death, you will go to Brahmaloka. What is Brahmaloka? It's literally the seventh of the seven heavens. With the English uh, term, seventh heaven, it's not wrong. It's the highest heaven. So the world of Brahma, the highest heaven, one goes there and lives there for the duration of the universe and finally attains to liberation. And it's, of course, an extraordinary existence. So that is called in Vedanta, Krama Mukti, sequential liberation. Uh, by that practice of Om, by meditation on God, devotion to God, one does not may not get directly liberation here and now, may not become a jivan mukta, fully liberated here and now, but will never come back. It's still freedom because it will never come back to this world and re- be reborn in this world, but still exist as an individual in the world of uh, in Brahma Loka. Now what this brahmaloka is basically this is the idea of heaven in all theistic religions the uh, all the religions, the goal is to go to heaven. After death, you will go to heaven. If you are a virtuous Christian, Muslim, Vaishnava, Shakta, Shaiva, you go to heaven. What is heaven? It is Kailasha for the Shaiva. It is Devi Loka for the worshipper of the Divine Mother. It is Vaikunta or Goloka for the worshipper of Vishnu or Krishna. It's a, the he, heaven of the Christians, the Jannat of uh, the Muslims, uh, the pure land of the Buddhists. So there is a state of existence which is supreme which is extraordinary which is unthinkable for us but which we can attain to and still retain your individuality so it's a most blissful state and theistic religions aim at that isn't it enough yes it is in the sense that you will never be reborn again and you'll never suffer again Uh, you'll remain in joy and bliss in the presence of god for a very 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 long time why very very why not eternally well, because this universe will come to an end and with that, all places will come to an end, including Brahma Loka. So only after that, only God will exist with God's power of Maya. For a long time, I mean time won't exist until the next creation. But then those who are in Brahma Loka, those who are spiritual practitioners who have meditated on Om, will not come back again. They will attain liberation at the end of this universe. So that's one track of magnificent, but Difficult to attain and very, very long duration, millions and billions of years. Uh, you will exist in that way. So this is you might say, How do I know any of this is true? It's just that the books say it. True, you may believe in it. And being a follower of Vedanta, we believe that such a thing is possible. And notice, in general, they may not use terms like Om and Brahmaloka, but in general, all theistic religions across the world speak of this. They all speak of the existence of God. They all speak of uh, those who are good in the the terms of their religion. After death, you still continue to exist in a wonderful place, in the presence of God. They will say eternally, but we can take it as an extraordinarily long period of time. So it is um, interesting that um, different religions, different perspectives who don't agree on anything but uh, they agree on this, that this is the result of all devotion. But Vedanta goes beyond that. Vedanta, real, the core of Vedanta is not even that. So if somebody says, I don't believe in such things, it doesn't matter. The real Vedanta, which you know, where Yama is going to go into, real Advaitic teaching, is not about going to heaven, about staying in Brahma for millions of years. Um, none of that. It is about here and now. It's not about believing in something. It's about our experience right now. Who we are, what we are, investigating into that and finding our infinite nature. Right here. And this body will continue. This world will continue to appear. But in in and through this uh, experience, we will discover our unlimited nature. That is Moksha. That is the very different perspective of Advaita Vedanta, which we now we will see. So what did we see here? uh, Summarizing. Yama started the teaching by saying, I'm going to teach you Vedanta. The answer to your question is Vedanta. And that answer I can teach in one mantra, in one letter, Om. And the meaning of that Om, it's the best support for meditation. It's highly prescribed. Uh, It's a a good thing to do, even if you are on the path of inquiry. It's good to chant mantra. Of course, many of us are initiated. You'll notice that in your initiation mantra, Om will always be there. And followed by something else. So you may not chant Om only, you may chant your um, Ishta Mantra. And that is highly recommended. It is very good for our Vedantic inquiry, which we will do. It prepares the mind for Vedantic inquiry. It collects the mind, concentrates the mind and purifies the mind. Then Vedantic inquiry is powerful and effective. Otherwise, uh, Vedantic inquiry it becomes a miserable affair, very difficult. Uh, one may not believe in it, one may not progress far in it, one may not see what is being taught there. Even if you see, it may not feel like a real thing. Uh, even if it feels like a real thing, one may still complain, my suffering has not gone away. Because uh, the mind has not been prepared. The other um, you know, desires are still there in the mind. Distraction of the mind is still there. All those things are corrected by chanting of the mantra OM, Or in our case, Ishta mantra, Ishta devata dhyana. Okay. Now, or the second use of om is as inquiry. That inquiry part will be started now. Though he will not talk about om as a tool for inquiry, which is done in Mandukya Upanishad. Mandukya Upanishad, whatever is taught in Mandukya Upanishad, it is literally an analysis of om, Aum, of ma of uh, waking, dreaming, deep sleep, and pure consciousness, the fourth. Here, he will go on to teach the same thing in simpler language. Very poetic. Next mantra, he starts the teaching of self-inquiry, which is the heart of Vedanta. Not to do this meditation and chanting and believe in God and at the end of your life you will go to heaven and stay in Brahmaloka for eons. No, 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 not that. That is the sequential liberation in Sanskrit Krama Mukti. But now he is going to talk about the path of Mukti. Sadhya Mukti means here and now. Direct liberation in this life. Now as you are living in this body you will attain to realization of uh, God. You will attain to enlightenment and be free here and now. So that is going to be the teaching now, from now onwards. So that's really the heart of Vedanta. Can it be chanted silently? Certainly. A loud prolonged chanting is good. It calms the mind. Om calms the mind down. And silently also, it focuses the mind. In any case, many of you um, of us who are chanting or repeating the mantra, Ishta mantra, which we have got from our Guru, are silently repeating Om as part of our mantra anyway. Now, onwards to um, the teaching of Vedanta. Self-enquiry. The real nature, who we really are. That is now going to be taught. Mantra number eighteen Najayate, Mriate, Va Vipaschit, Nayam Kutashidna Babuva Kaschit, Ajo Nitya Shashvato, purano, Nahanyate, Hanyamane, Shari. Very poetic uh, mantra that this. Being of intelligence, the, your reality, the Atman. It is not born, it does not die. Nor does it come from anything, nor does anything come from it. Unborn, Aja. Nitya means eternal. Shashwata means again eternal or, or um, like long-lasting. There are multiple words in Sanskrit which all basically mean eternal. I am Purana. It's ancient yet new does not die with the destruction of the body. So it continues. Here in the body, it's there and after the destruction of the body also it persists. So this is a classic doctrine, the Hindu doctrine of the Atma, of the self, uh, the real spiritual self. Um, the word here you hear, used here is vipaschit. Vipaschit means consciousness. Vipaschit means consciousness, awareness. The Commentator says, A vipari lupta chaitanya swabhavat. So, the word Vipaschit used in Indian language, in Sanskrit, it means an intelligent person. Vipaschit in Bengali also means intelligent person, uh, person of great acumen and intelligence. But what is the technical meaning here in the Upanishad? It means consciousness. The Shankaracharya comments, A chaitanya svabhavad. The unwavering consciousness. Unflickering consciousness, consciousness which is not subject to increase and decrease, coming and going, birth and death. This is a very important point. Um, This consciousness, what is this consciousness? If we analyze all our experiences, we will find this consciousness. This consciousness does not mean the Um, the various conscious experiences we are continuously having. So it is a very important thing to distinguish. The moment you talk about consciousness studies today, what people mean is that you are seeing something, that's that's consciousness. You are hearing, that's consciousness. You are thinking, uh, feeling something, emotions, happy and sad, that's consciousness. You are trying to remember something, remembering or failing to remember, that's consciousness. You are trying to understand something, um, create something uh, mentally. So all these are consciousness. That's how consciousness studies talks about consciousness. That's the normal. The dictionary understanding of consciousness would include all of these things. You are awake right now. So this is consciousness. In some sense, dreaming is also consciousness. But deep sleep would be unconsciousness. This is the way um, philosophers, doctors, physicians, biologists, brain scientists, they all understand consciousness. And modern consciousness studies talks about it. But here, notice, it says consciousness, yet this consciousness, it does not change. This consciousness, mm-hmm. it's not born with the birth of the body and the brain, nervous system. It does not die with the death of the body, brain and nervous system. It does not come and go, does not increase and decrease. Then it's not talking about these instants and instances of consciousness which we experience. Just seeing something. That is a flash of an experience. For a split second, you saw something. It's, that experience was not there earlier. That experience was not there afterwards. What he's saying here is, then what what consciousness is he talking about? What what consciousness is um, Upanishad talking about? This is the only kind of consciousness that we experience. It is this thing, and yet it is not this thing. How? This thing means what we are experiencing right now. Take a closer look at what we are experiencing. When you see something, different colors, you are aware. When you hear something, right now you're hearing my voice, you are aware. But when you see something, you see um, a pen, a flower, you are aware. And when you uh, listen to my words, you are aware. The two experiences are different. Seeing a flower and listening to the sound of a human voice, these are two different experiences. Yet what is common to both? both are conscious experiences the consciousness in each experience in itself apart from the flower seeing the flower and hearing a voice these are two different kinds of experiences apart from them this unique nature of both notice one something was common to both that it felt like something that it was an internal direct experience which we had that Experience is common to all our experiences in life. When you see something, you are aware. When you hear something, whenever you hear something, you're aware. When you touch something, you're aware. When you smell something, you're aware. When you taste something, you're aware. When you're thinking, thoughts are coming and going, there is awareness. When you are feeling something, anger, love, uh, desire, peace, all of this, there is awareness. When you are awake, there is awareness. When you are dreaming, there is awareness. Without that, no dream is possible. And Vedanta will go so far as to say, when you are in deep sleep, there is still awareness. This is where consciousness studies most of the understanding of, of consciousness parts company with the Vedantic or Sankhya idea of consciousness. Shankaracharya says, Avipari lupta chaitanya Consciousness which is not lost. So it's not lost in deep sleep either. Why does it not feel like anything? Because of the fact that we are taking mind as consciousness. The activities of the mind as consciousness. The moment the mind shuts up, feels like nothing. Blank. And yet it can't be so. The blank itself was uh, revealed to something. You cannot deny. You are the one who is awake. You are the one who dreamt. Then will you deny you are the one who had deep sleep? Will you say somebody else slept? Will you say there was no deep sleep? No, there was deep sleep and you own up to it. It was my deep sleep. Whose deep sleep was it? If, you, if there was no awareness there at all, who was it? What was it? And deep sleep is a phenomenon recognized in every culture of the world. Everywhere there is a language, there is an expression of, about deep sleep. Deep sleep is, 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 real, is real, it happens. Modern physiology also shows the different brain states associated with waking, dreaming, and deep sleep. That means deep sleep is a distinct state. And curiously enough, reductive materialism, which says brain is nothing but consciousness, brain activity is consciousness, well, then you have to admit in deep sleep, there is still clearly activity in the brain. Then uh, will you say that there is no consciousness? How do you know? Um, The consciousness studies researcher, Tononi, uh, so, so who is at this, this um, the leading theory of consciousness today? Uh, what is it? Integrated in, uh, information theory, I think, uh, IIT, it's one of the higher order, theory, what they call them hot theories, higher order theories of consciousness, I was listening to an interview with him. It's very close to Vedanta, <laughs> uh, I mean very close, not Vedanta at all, but very close, one more big step is necessary. Um, He's saying that um, a person in, somebody is in coma, clearly in coma, nothing you can know, there's no reaction outside. Yet, fMRI scans reveal uh, that this person in coma, he calls it very poetically, he says the brain is islands of light in the midst of a chaos of destruction. All other parts of the brain are dead. Some parts of the brain are alive and they're functioning. You can see it is lit up. Now, the interesting thing is, Those are the the, sometimes they are the areas which correspond to the perception of sound. Some sometimes they are the areas which correspond to the perception of taste or smell. Does that mean in this person who is in coma, the person is hearing inside? Nothing else is functioning, but is able to hear. If you are reductive materialist, you say that the um, activity of the neurons is the consciousness. Whenever the neurons are active, you must say there is consciousness then and then, then these neurons which uh, the parts in the brain which correspond to the perception of sound are active in a comatose brain what will you say then that uh, but then is it then you have to admit that that person may be conscious inside just we cannot access that anymore um what does a child's brain which is not developed in many areas some areas are developed some many areas are not developed a baby newborn baby's brain is the person is the baby conscious or not conscious this is the questions he's asking. Now notice from a Vedantic perspective, these are components of mental activity. So, um, if there is bursts of sound, yes, consciousness may be perceiving sound inside. It's not that that neuronal activity is generating consciousness plus the perception of sound. That neuronal activity is corresponding to the perception of sound and that is possible because of the constant presence of consciousness. What Shankaracharya is calling the consciousness which is not ever lost, in a negative sense, he's, he's using never lost consciousness. One website is there, never not here. The name of the website is never not here. It's a website on Vedanta. It's a very nice way of putting it. Atman is something which is never not here, it's always there. So this. The Upanishad uses the word vipaschit, which means consciousness. It is there when you're awake, it's there when you're in uh, dreaming, it's there when there is deep sleep, and again when you awake, same awareness, same consciousness is there. This one consciousness which lights up all our activities lights up means it enables us to have experience. Look at one more argument which occurred to me about the unique and independent nature of consciousness is that um, uh, this advanced machines, which we have now, which are powered by AI. So you have various sensors, robots, and all of that, which are powered by AI, advanced computer programs. Now they can imitate, they can do whatever um, a living being can do. They can see, there are sensors which can see. See means at least behaviorally they can see. You go to an airport door, it will open suddenly. It's a simple sensor. There's no AI there, Just a simple sensor. But in one sense, it sees your presence. It senses your presence. There are devices which hear. All our devices right now are hearing. All these phones and all, they suddenly offer to help you with something, which means they are always listening. These this sneaky devices they are always listening to what we are saying. So they are hearing. Um, there are devices which can taste and smell also. There are devices which are they call a haptic senses. They can uh, sense pressure and uh, touch. Yet, one thing they cannot do, And MIT engineers, um, Harvard engineers, they they, uh, all uh, will agree. They are not having internal sensation of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. No, they are not. All the activities of senses are duplicated. All the activities of mind are duplicated. Now there are programs which can uh, play, uh, not only play chess, but also they can be creative. They can write stories. They can do wonderful acts of translation. Um, Recently, I I was stunned to see that one of the most difficult philosophical texts, Ludwig Wittgenstein's Tractatus Logico-Philosophicus, which is a a classic of Western analytic philosophy in the 20th century. It was fed, and AI was made to study it. And uh, not only that, write more, extend it. Further, what Wittgenstein would have said today the AI was asked, and it, so it wrote Wittgenstein 2022. Some more uh, statements, which are part of the original book, it extended it. Most difficult philosophical text, now AI is studying and s- suggesting some more uh, uh, you know, additions to it. What it's suggesting is utter nonsense. I mean, if uh, clearly it has not even scratched the understanding of, uh, there's no understanding there at all. But some kind of philosophy, good enough for philosophy professors to dabble in it and publish articles. So what AI does with, you know, with philosophical statements, AI is studying philosophy, AI is composing poems, good poems and um, short stories. Uh, so all of this is happening. Creativity, memory, of course, memory, tremendous memory, computers have tremendous memory, far more powerful than ours. Uh, creativity, memory, at least a simulation of uh, desire, uh, you know, emotion, it can simulate behavior. All of this, Computers are able to do now. Everything that your mind can do and your senses can do, computers can do now and um, in many cases, better. Better. And how do you know better? By the results you compare. One human being asked to do it and asked the computer to do it. Computer will do often better. Except one thing. What is the most common thing for all of us? We are having a vivid first person experience inside. None of those computers ever have that. None of those machines ever have that. Nobody even questions it because the people who are designing it, they will say, we never programmed it to have consciousness inside. We can explain seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. We can explain memory. We can explain decision-making in AI. We can explain creativity in AI, translation in AI. But there is no module, no program for consciousness, first-person experience. We don't even know how to do that. There is no... We can't even approach it in programming how can it have inner experience like we are all having effortlessly all the time therefore all this is to indicate therefore we must treat consciousness in itself as an independent as entity which uh, has its own properties don't treat it as a movement of the mind or just as a movement of the senses those things can be duplicated by machines without any consciousness whatsoever so consciousness is unique and it gives you the first person experience of anything. Your whole life is basically because of consciousness. This is called vipash. All of this is to say vipashchit. Now, na jayate mriyate. How could such a consciousness begin? How could it be born? From the birth of the body with the baby and the brain, when it's. Born. Really? We just talked, showed that it is not a physical thing. It is not uh, uh, something produced by a physical body. There is no theory now which is even close to solving how a brain could produce consciousness. That may surprise so many people. That's the so-called hard problem of consciousness. No, none of them. And I'm now beginning to see at least three names I know. Um, Dan Hoffman, um, David Chalmers, Bernardo Kastrup uh, and some others also who are beginning to say things about consciousness which are very much like uh, Mahayana Buddhism and Advaita Vedanta and Sankhya. And they are, they are very respected members of philosophy departments and scientists. Um, so not yet mainstream, but now you're beginning to see an insoluble problem which cannot be solved by mainstream reductionism. And uh, now they are thinking about consciousness as an independent entity. This consciousness is not produced by the brain. There is no way it could have been produced by the brain. If it is not produced by the brain, why would you say it is born with the birth of the brain? Why would you say when the brain dies, it will die? How do you know? It has nothing to do with the birth and death of the brain. With the birth and death of the living body. So, Najayate jaya te This consciousness is not born. This consciousness does not die. You, your essence, what you truly are, is already immortal. It does not depend upon Vedanta. It does not depend upon you being spiritual, a good person, bad person. You are already immortal. That cannot be destroyed. Um, then the next line is very interesting. That is, it is not caused by anything. Nor is anything caused by it. You say, where does God come from? Where does Atma come from? Where does consciousness come from? It does not come from anything. It is fundamental to this universe. If you ask where does existence come from, you cannot uh, say that. Because why not? What is the cause of existence? Where did existence come from? But if something it came from something, then that must exist. Otherwise, how will it come from? How will existence come from that? But if it exists, then existence is already there. You have admitted it. In Advaita Vedanta, consciousness and existence are very much the same thing. This is a conscious existence or an existent consciousness, sat-chit. So there's no question of it coming from anything. And nothing is produced from it. See, from one material entity, another material entity can be produced. But from consciousness, which is not a material entity, which is not an object, how can something be produced, which is an object? Production, cause and effect, both are objects to consciousness. If something is produced from consciousness and consciousness itself becomes an object, it becomes a cause. But consciousness is neither cause nor object. From what material entity was consciousness produced? One Buddhist Lama, he gave a nice argument. He says, that the traditional idea right now, which is the materialist reductionist approach, From the brain, consciousness is produced. The the Buddhist lama argued in this way, two big problems you will have. First of all, the hard problem of consciousness. You cannot show how from a brain consciousness is produced. This is something cutting edge, investigating it now. uh, These Buddhists were talking about it thousands of years ago. Upanishads were talking about it 5,000 years ago. You cannot explain consciousness in terms of a physical entity. So brain is producing consciousness. You can't explain it. Tell me how. Second big problem will be that there is a brain apart from consciousness. How do you know that there is a world apart from consciousness? That the world exists? You see, what a crazy idea. No, it's not a crazy idea. And this is called idealism. And it's in a very respected ancient position. You cannot demonstrate the existence of anything apart from consciousness. Think about it, anything that you demonstrate, that you say that this exists. No, in the far reaches of the universe, on some planet, um, in some rock, there is something there. We don't know about it, how there is no consciousness, and we are not aware of it. But it's there, without consciousness, it exists. Who is saying this? A conscious being. Where is even the conception of a universe, a far-off universe? I am a tiny creature, and outside me there is a huge universe. All of this is happening where? In consciousness. You have to radically rethink why this idea is difficult to accept is we are so solidly entrenched in the body. I am this. Then there is a universe outside you. Then there are far off planets which you have never seen and never will never will see. And they are, those exist without your intervention. But you the body and this planet and the far off universe, all of that is being experienced in consciousness. Is it not you the consciousness? It is impossible to demonstrate the existence of anything apart from awareness, consciousness, or in idealistic terms, apart from mind. Many people think idealism has been thoroughly rejected. Idealism means mind is the only reality, consciousness is the only reality. It has been thoroughly disproved in the modern world because of which, you know, the modern science is is so prestigious and powerful, nobody thinks that consciousness is the only reality. But if you go to philosophy departments, they are not so sure. There was uh, the great philosopher G.E. Moore, who was an elder contemporary of Russell, Bertrand Russell in Cambridge. His his refutation of idealism is a um, famous paper, short two pages, two, three pages paper, apparently Idealism that the world is in, in your awareness only, that idea was totally destroyed by G.E. Moore's refutation of idealism. If you read that paper, you'll be shocked. You know, what is the proof that there is an external world? What is the proof apart from the mind? There is an external world. Can you prove it? He says, Yes, the proof is simple. In you know what proof he says, He says, Hold up one hand and say, This is one hand. Yes, hold up the other hand and they say, This is another hand. Yes. They proved that there are two hands. So what do you mean? Just as in normal day-to-day language, when you say, there is a book in front of me, do you think, is the book really in front of me or is it in my mind only? You don't think that. When you say there is a book on the table, there is a table and there is a book on the table. That's how you understand language. So similarly, there is a hand. You don't have to think any further. Is there externally a hand or only it is in my mind? Anyway, this is the level of argument. You might say, what kind of argument is this? And it was taken that idealism is finished. No, there is no way. These two things are impossible. If you say brain produces consciousness, these two things are impossible to prove. How brain produces consciousness, nobody knows. Nobody has any idea. And then um, Tononi was asked in that interview that some um, philosophers and scientists are saying consciousness is an illusion. Tononi laughed. He said, I don't know what to say to such people. The only reality that we have, ever have and ever possible to have, is consciousness. So, if you say the only reality is illusion, (laughs) then what is reality? I don't know. So, uh, two problems cannot be solved if you say brain produces consciousness. How brain produces consciousness? You cannot solve that. That is the problem of hard problem of consciousness. Is there at all a brain apart from consciousness? I mean, any external world is there at all apart from our awareness? That is the problem of idealism. These two questions cannot be answered. So, consciousness is the reality in which the universe appears and changes. Universe is changing. Consciousness is not changing. Consciousness was not produced by the universe. Then what about this universe? Where did it come from? What's the relation with consciousness? Answer is no relation from Advaita Vedanta perspective, no universe was produced by consciousness. This is interesting. When you say, so, you cannot prove that consciousness is is a product of brain and nervous system. Good. Then are you some kind of religious nut? You think that consciousness has produced the world, God has produced the world. Are are you trying to say that? Advaita Vedanta Upanishad says, nothing has been produced from consciousness. Then what is the relation between these two? Where does this come from? Advaita Vedanta says, this what you are experiencing, universe, body, senses, mind, thoughts, feelings, emotions, all of them are a display in consciousness, like reflections in water, like a movie on a movie screen, like dreams in the mind. They have no existence apart from consciousness. And they have not been actually produced in consciousness. See, when um, um, you you see cities, cars, people, dogs in a movie screen? Have cities been actually built on a movie screen? Have, are there cars which are being driven on a movie screen? Not at all. These are pictures. There are really no car there, no city there, no dog there, nothing. There are appearances on the movie screen. Therefore, all that we experience in life, apart from consciousness, is not apart from consciousness. It appears to consciousness, it means the universe. Appears to consciousness, step one. In consciousness, step two. Nothing but consciousness, step three. If you see a flower in a dream, what will you say? It appeared to my mind, in my mind, and it is nothing other than my mind. It's not a flower. It's my mind alone appearing as a flower. Similarly, in this waking world, the universe is appearing to you, the consciousness, including your body, including your little personality, is appearing to you, the infinite consciousness, unlimited consciousness, in you, the consciousness, because there is nothing outside you. And if it is in you and to you and in you, it cannot be anything other than you. You alone are appearing as your other. You, the subject, are appearing as the object. You, the consciousness, are appearing as the non conscious, sentient appearing as insentient. You, the unlimited, are appearing as many, many limited things. You, the eternal, you're appearing as the um, temporary uh, events and things of the world. You, the complete, blissful, you're appearing as the incomplete, fractured, sorrowful. In this world. So this is the meaning of na, na babhu Vakaschit. Now one very interesting. You know, this very line. So the first line of the Quran. Uh, many people don't know this. Al Quran, the first line of Quran is Allah was not born from anything, and nothing was born from Allah very interesting that you would think a very theistic dualistic text uh, like the quran it starts with the highest truth of non-duality of course it is not understood in that way i was reading a commentator in the very beginning he takes it up and starts a fight he says so the quran says the holy book says nothing was born from uh, allah was not born from anything and nothing was born from allah therefore god cannot be born as the son of God and Christians are wrong to call Christ the son of God because son, God does not have a son. Nothing was born from uh, Allah. So uh, Christ is not the son of God. So immediately first line of uh, there itself it's, they start a fight. But it has a very profound, deep meaning that the ultimate reality is not a cause, is not an effect. It is the only reality that is. The ultimate reality is not a cause and not an effect, then there is nothing else apart from it. It is non-dual, no second thing apart from it. Let us see. So, all of this is to negate the six-fold changes which we undergo. We we are so identified with the body, this cuts it down. You are the consciousness, you are not the body. The body undergoes six-fold changes. You, the consciousness, do not undergo six-fold changes. What are the six-fold changes? I'll give you the Sanskrit names first and then run through them in English. Um, uh, asti, Jayate, uh, Vardhate, and then um, Viparinamate, Apakshiyate, nashyati. Asti means it comes into existence. Comes into existence means in the mother's womb, the body comes into existence. That body of the baby, the fetus, which was not there earlier, now comes into existence. Then the second is born. The body comes, has a separate existence apart from the mother, is born. Second change. All physical. Then, um, it grows. Baby, uh, little boy or girl and teenager, youth, it grows. Then it reaches maturity. Viparinamate uh, keeps changing. And then uh, old age sets in. Apakshyati begins to deteriorate. Things begin to fail and fall apart. And finally, that body which came into existence in the mother's womb, Nasyati, dies. You, the consciousness, has none of these changes. There's never a time when you came into existence. You always were. There's never a time when you were born. You illumined the experience of the baby being born. That was the experience of the baby being born. You are the same. You are not born with the birth of the baby. Then, vadhate consciousness neither grows nor decreases. It is ever the same. What happens when you take a cup of coffee, you feel very more, much more conscious. Otherwise, you feel sleepy. That's the mind. The mind is feeling alert. Mind is feeling sleepy. My alert mind illumined by same consciousness. Consciousness is ever alert, undiminished. A moon goes through phases of the moon. The sun does not go through. In the sun, there is always blazing with light. Similarly, consciousness always blazing forth. Mind can be alert. Mind can be dull. And that's why you feel more conscious, less conscious. no more conscious, no less conscious. No change, no growth in consciousness. Then it reaches maturity, keeps on changing. It does not change. It illumines all change. But consciousness is not something that is subject to change. So Is it unchanging? That's the language of the Upanishads. Uh, eternal. Nagarjuna says, Asashwatam. Non-eternal. So are they talking about something? No, notice. It just means consciousness is, does not come under the category of changing or unchanging. Changing, unchanging are revealed by consciousness. You cannot say it is changing or unchanging. If you want to say something, say it is unchanging. Um, then apakshiyate, it declines. Consciousness does not decline. It reveals the declining of the body and mind. So Bill was saying, now I can't remember many things. So he's 97. I said, you remember more than us. Probably your memory is better than us. But remember, you are the same one who was the witness of the keen memory. And is the same one who is the witness of the declining memory. It, you did not change. The memory changed. And he said, that does not help. <laughs> uh, yeah, you have to take care of the health of the body and the memory as far as possible. But it will decline. As the Buddha said, all compounded things decay. What has been put apart will fall apart. Similarly, you can good health and good um, you know good practices, good medical care can help you, but it you cannot put it off till the very end. Um, I mean, you cannot put it off, put the end off completely forever. So apakshiyate, deteriorates. Consciousness does not deteriorate. Nashyati falls apart, destroys death. Consciousness does not die. So, this consciousness which you are, you are not born, you don't die, you don't grow, you don't change, you don't decay. You are ever the witness of all of this. When the body is destroyed, na hanyamane, na hanyate hanyamane not destroyed with the death of the body. This theme of not destroyed with the death of the body is put again in the 21st verse. Sorry, Um um 19th sorry 19th verse which we 19th mantra which we will see now anta cey manyate hantum hatas cey manyate hatam ubhauto na vijanito nayam hanti na hanyate the the killer thinks uh, that uh, I, I am killing uh, the one who is killed thinks i am killed or destroyed both do not know that the self, Atman, neither kills nor is killed. So, very murderous language is used here. You know, almost exactly the same language is used by Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita in second chapter when he's talking about Arjuna. Directly, directly these mantras he has taken. Sometimes the exact language, sometimes he has paraphrased them. And there it makes sense because in the middle of the battlefield, if you're going to instruct, you'll use instruct using these words. So, just to give an idea of what kind of things academicians uh, busy themselves with. In Harvard, this was one of the assignments. There was a paper which said this is very confusing. Why is Yama suddenly using the term uh, the one who kills uh, and one who thinks he is killed, both are wrong. What is this killing and being killed suddenly? This means the same verse is found in the Gita, which means, now look at the amazing conclusion which is drawn. It's actually Katopanishad. Yama has copied from the Gita. Because killing and killed This language makes sense in the Gita, in the context of Purukshetra, which means Kathopanishad must be later than Gita. This is all making a mess. (laughs) In Bengal, you say Kichudi, making a mess of the whole thing. Uh, No. Kathopanishad definitely predates the Gita. Gita. And Krishna is quoting from the Upanishads. And This verse is quoted, mantras quoted from Krishna. Why suddenly this language? Not surprising, because um, Yama is the lord of death. Why should there be any problem in him using the language like the one who kills, the one who is killed? Quite possible. So they belong to entirely different eras. Rama and Krishna and the age of the Puranas much later. And the Upanishads are much earlier. So this is the kind of text games that academicians play. All right. Now let me read from a poem from Emerson. Ralph Waldo Emerson. And you will be stunned to see exactly this language. Let me see. I got the poem here. The name of the poem is Brahma. So I'm reading the poem by Ralph Waldo Emerson. Remember, uh, Emerson, Thoreau, and uh, Walt Whitman. They were heavily influenced and they loved uh, ancient Indian texts. Uh, uh, Emerson actually had the best collection of Vedanta books or Indian philosophy books in the whole of America in those days, and he lent some of these books to uh, Thoreau, who went for you know in, in the ca- cabin when he stayed there. He would read, um, Gita. He would read Gita uh, regularly. So, let me read out the poem. Keep in mind this mantra which we just read, "Brahma" by Ralph Waldo Emerson. If the red slayer thinks he slays. Or if the slain think he is slain, they know not well the subtle ways. I keep and pass and turn again. So the slayer thinks he is slain and the slain thinks he is slain, they do not know the subtle truth. I keep, I am. And I, I come and I go. But I am still the same. I am not killed, nor do I kill. Far or forgot to me is near. Shadow and sunlight are the same. The vanished gods to me appear. And one to me are shame and fame. They reckon reckon ill who leave me out. When me they fly, I am the wings. I am the doubter and the doubt. I am the hymn the Brahmin sings. The strong gods pine for my abode. And pine in vain the sacred seven. But thou meek lover of the good find me and turn thy back on heaven. So you find ultimate reality, and you turn your back on heaven. This is a very Vedantic thing, that going to heaven is, is part of a, uh, of a lower path. When you realize you are one with the, with the ultimate reality, you are beyond uh, heaven and earth. You don't have to go to, as the earlier mantra said, Brahma, Loka, and be there in the highest heaven. Not necessary. You become uh, enlightened, you are one with that right now. So, Emerson, this he took directly from the Kathopanishad, from this mantra which we are reading. Um, What has been said here? Basically, what has been said here is, not only is consciousness not born, not only consciousness does not die, not only consciousness is unchanging, not only consciousness does not increase, not only consciousness is ever shining, makes possible all our experiences, but also... Consciousness is not a doer or a sufferer. The basic problem in our samsara is that when action is done, I am the doer. In Sanskrit, Katritva. I am the doer. And then the result of the action inevitably comes to me. I, this person, I did something, now I got to suffer, suffer for it. Then I am the sufferer or enjoyer. In Sanskrit, bhaktritva. This is samsara. This is the core of samsara. See, if all of this were like a movie playing out in consciousness, if you were watching a movie, we could, we, we had no problem. We really don't even have problems with the most monstrous um, uh, villains in the movie, or we are not particularly, uh, you know, uh, moved by even the greatest of heroes in the movie because it's a movie. But if I am a character in that, I cannot but be affected by it. If I think I am doing these things, so isn't consciousness doing it? No. Imagine a film screen, a movie screen. Somebody is driving a car. Will you say that the screen is driving a car? No, because from the perspective of the screen, there is no car and there's no driver. There's no road. The car, driver, road are all pictures appearing on the screen. Screen neither drives a car, nor is the car, nor the driver, nor the owner of a car, because none of them are there. They are appearances from the perspective of the screen. The moment you think, I am the driver, I am this car is real, I am real, then you are the driver. Then uh, you have to pay for the insurance of the car and every uh, accident is your responsibility. So law of karma will work when you identify yourself with body-mind. When you realize you are the Atman, law of karma will not work. You are not the doer. That is freedom. Vivekananda's good, good, bad, bad and none escape the law. But whosoever wears a form, wears the chain too. What's the chain? The chain of karma. Then what is the Upanishad saying? What is Vedanta saying? Far beyond name and form is Atman ever free. No, thou art that. Sanyasi bold say, Om Tat Sat You are that reality. You just have to realize that I am that. Then you are free of this. The movie will not stop. The world will go on. This body will go on to its inevitable end. Mind will go on thinking with the senses you will experience and with the hands and feet you will act. And yet, In the midst of all of this, you are free. You don't have to go to Brahma Loka or heaven to be free. You don't have to sit in Samadhi to be free. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, you are free all throughout because you know that you are consciousness itself. You are not the doer. Hence, neither the good actions nor the bad actions, dharma or adharma, will have any effect on you. You are not the doer, not the experiencer of the results of doing. And yet... And then who is the doer? Who is uh, suffering in samsara? Who is doing all of this? You are doing it. You are the doer. You are the experiencer. You are the sufferer. But you are always safe from it. What do I mean? How, how, how can I contradict myself? Because without you, the consciousness, is any doing possible? Without you, the consciousness, is any enjoying or suffering possible? Impossible. You being there... There appears a world, a body, a personality and other people and activities going on there, good and bad. All of those things appear. From your perspective, they are like a magic display. From your perspective, you are ever free of it. But the world goes on as an appearance within you. So that is the meaning of this wonderful mantra. Here it denies to this pure consciousness, the Atman, the mortal awareness which you are, it denies agentship and um, experientialship. You are neither the um, subject of action nor the object of action. So this is the meaning. This is freedom from samsara, realizing this. And in the midst of that, again, activity we can continue. After teaching all of this, um, I'm sure Nachiketa led a very active life after this. Neither the doer nor the sufferer of uh, actions. Arjuna was asked to continue as a warrior after being taught all of this. So at the level of the world, level of the body, actions can continue and should continue. There's no need to stop them. You can't even stop them. The movie will continue as uh, the director has willed it. But you are free from it. And now as the reality of this behind the movie, you are free to enjoy it and live your life through that. And also be a source of peace and blessings for others. You're no longer trapped there. This is called jivan mukti, free while living in this body. Good. Let us quickly look at the observations. Patrick says it sounds like going to Brahmaloka as a scenic route to Brahman. Why wouldn't this be acceptable to Vedantists? It is acceptable. There are people who would want it. Um, and why not go and live in the presence of God for millions of years before disappearing into, into infinity? But there are those who want to be enlightened here and now. Girish says, David Chalmers' new book, Reality Plus, in which says he's agnostic about the possibility of phenomenological world simulation. Is this a potential convergence with Advaita, but in different worlds? Could we not say that an appearance in Brahman is equivalent to simulation? Of course. In fact, I have spoken with David Chalmers about this. He he proposed that we have um, a conversation on Advaita Vedanta and his new book, this Reality Plus. And he actually sees this convergence. I don't know when that conversation will happen, but I agreed to it. And so if it does happen, great. In fact, when he told me about the book several uh, months back, so at that time, I pre-ordered it. So it should be coming anytime. I think it's going to be released this month. Oh, by the way, before I forget, um, we have uh, another significant major book being released this month. Um, it is about Swami Vivekananda. Ayan Maharaj, Swami Medhananda, who wrote that wonderful book, Infinite Path to Infinite Reality, about Sri Ramakrishna's philosophy, has written another book about Swami Vivekananda's cosmopolitanism. So that book is going to be published by Oxford University Press and released. It's already done. It's going to be released this month. So yes, uh, David Chalmers has written this book and uh, I look forward to reading it and having potentially having a conversation with David Chalmers. Purnamji says to realize the highest as grace. To have a role, as Bhagawan mentions in Gita or meditation on Om is enough. Even to meditate on Om, you need grace. <laughs> Even to have the desire for enlightenment, uh, all of this is a sign of great grace. In Advaita Vedanta, this is that the grace of God is upon you. If you are interested in Advaita, if you are practicing, if you are seeking enlightenment, already you are blessed. Rabir Babu says, awareness you are talking about different from reflected consciousness? Yes, it is original awareness. Reflected consciousness also comes and goes. Then the mind shuts down. So if you take away the mirror, the reflection will go away. But the original will not go away. Gloria says, what is the connection between the objects of awareness and maya? Are they manifestations of maya? They are manifestations of maya. It's a magical display. How can there be a magical display in consciousness? Uh, it is. This is called Maya. Maya is basically like a magical display. It is the very power of consciousness to appear to itself as an other. The Eternal appears as the ever-changing. The conscious appears as the non-conscious, insentient. The unlimited appears as the limited, something that is born and changes and dies. That which is full and, and the blessed appears as the miserable and the small. Yeah. Swami Vivekananda said, this universe is the shipwreck of the infinite on the shores of time, space, and causation. Uh, Rama says the awareness which has experiences all the time. Is it the awareness of the mind or the chiddhavhasa? So, this is what exactly what Praveer Babu had asked. It is the original consciousness, it is consciousness itself, which is reflected in the mind as the chidavasa reflected consciousness, enabling it to experience. So in the mind, all sorts of thoughts, feelings, emotions are coming. They are rising. They are called vrittis in the mind. And all of them are lit up by the reflected consciousness. That's what gives us our individual experience. That's why machines which may generate all sorts of um, you know, um, thought-like uh, simulations, but there is no experience going on in them because there is no reflected consciousness there. Rick says, Beethoven had started a tenth symphony but died before he finished it. AI was recently used to complete it, Fed into a lot of information, other works. A symphony recently performed it. It sounded a lot like something he might have written. Yes, creativity, I'm um, reading, uh, or I mean, um, this mathematician, Marcus Tussetoy at Oxford University, he told me about the amazing strides that have been made in AI creativity, including music, although at this level, I didn't know. But this is something like uh, Wittgenstein's philosophy book. So if you see what AI has written, uh, Wittgenstein 2022, it sounds a lot like Wittgenstein. But basically, it's it's nonsense. So, but in music, it sounds a lot like Beethoven. So it probably is not nonsense. It's probably pretty good. Abhijit says, does the mantra 1 to 18 imply Advaita? Yes. Can this self exist and there be a world disjoint from it? No. Does this mantra rule out such a possibility? Yes, it does. Um, that um, if nothing, if it's not born from anything else and nothing else comes from it, and it illumines and gives existence to all experience, then it's the only thing that could possibly exist. That's an Advaitic perspective. Sankhya would say, yes, it's perfectly compatible with the material universe existing outside it. So Prakriti and Purusha dualism. Nivedita says, what will happen if someone lost all five senses simulated? It has been simulated. Sensory deprivation tanks are there. You can, you can, will be immersed in this dark chamber and floating in a liquid. Uh, so you will not be able to see anything, hear anything, smell anything, taste or even touch anything. The world will disappear. But what will be the conscious experience be like while the person is still alive? Why don't you look at your own dreams? The world has disappeared. You're not seeing, smelling, tasting, touching anything outside. But it's all entirely in your mind. It's a pretty vivid experience. Consciousness and mind continues. Suppose next you say, suppose the mind is also put to sleep. No more thinking. Then deep sleep. Kiran is saying Jivan Mukta is detached from the so-called first person experience. How they define their first person experience, consciousness only is not detached. The first person experience you will see has two aspects. What is first person experience? Something feels like something. It feels like something to taste coffee. It feels like something to touch a hot cup of coffee. And the touch of the heat and the taste of the coffee are two different feels like something. This difference in the taste and the touch is caused by the external world and by the vrittis of the mind. These are all appearances in consciousness, but it is an inner feeling, direct first person experience. That is due to consciousness. And even, even that is also mediated by reflected consciousness. Um, so, not detached. The Jivan Mukta realizes this one unlimited awareness is all that exists. I am that awareness in that the world, body, and the first person experience in this body mind are continuing. They are appearing, disappearing, rising, and falling. And I am the enjoyer of all. Enjoyer means the witness of all of that. I illumine all of that and I give it all of that exp- uh, reality. I give it, it its existence, whatever existence it has. I am the existence of all of that. Sangita says, if not seen from a philosophical lens, is Emerson's poetry also touching upon the concept of law of conservation of energy? I suppose, yes, why not? Rick says, some people use I am not the doer to excuse immoral behavior. Yeah, That will not um, cut much ice either with people uh, outside. Or even with the person who is trying to excuse it. Because you cannot be excused. I am not the doer. And then I do wrong things. uh, Deliberately. See there is a falsity there. Why not? I am not the doer. So long things can happen. Like a movie. there can be a horror movie. They can be a good movie. So the screen is not affected. If you have a horror movie. Or a villainous person on the screen. It doesn't affect the screen. You are the witness. If the terrible things are done. By the body mind. what, What is it to you? But notice. When you do, when one, someone violates ethics, why does someone violate ethics? Why would I tell a lie and do something immoral and steal and uh, uh, you know, cheat people? Only because of desires. Only because of fear or temptation. Something I cannot resist, so I'm overstepping uh, ethical. I know what is wrong, yet I'm doing it because I can't resist it. Or the opposite that i am scared of something and little children are scared of being scolded or punished and tell a lie now an enlightened person if you realize that you are infinite consciousness what can you desire there should be no nothing in this world that you particularly desire what are the things that you desire in a movie nothing how much would you pay for a candy which you saw in the movie nothing Unless you get it really, just the picture of the candy in the movie, you don't pay. It doesn't. It's not there. An enlightened person sees that there is nothing apart from Brahman, Atman, pure consciousness, or pure being, and therefore there is nothing that moves you. You, you are complete in yourself. The entire universe is nothing apart from you. In one sense, there is nothing to be desired. In another sense, everything is accomplished already. Everything is yours. So why would you desire something? Why would you be afraid of anything? Nothing can kill you or damage you even. What would you be afraid of? What threat, what fear, what anxiety, what disease can affect you? Nothing. At the most, at the worst, it can affect only this one little body. How many such bodies have come and gone? Have the same vairagya for the mind. Just as you treat the body as something that has come and gone, thoughts in the mind, little fears, anxieties, You know how one monk put it very beautifully. Early in the morning you see a ray of sunshine come into your room and you see the Brownian motion of little dust particles floating around, many tiny dust particles. How many such thoughts, feelings, emotions, in how many, many, many minds across the universe, across all living beings, they're appearing, dancing and floating around in the ray of consciousness, the light of consciousness. Don't bother. Even in the mind, if there is negativity, if there is desire, if there is anger, if there is uh, depression, even a little bit comes and goes, don't really be upset about it. Don't even try to go and fight it. If you see I am the witness of it, you will see it will float around and disappear again. Don't be swept away into action by those thoughts which are coming in. Don't become depressed. Don't become angry. Don't give way to greed. No. They are like dust particles floating, motes of dust floating in, in immortal light that light which you are. Always have been. Shiva Priya says, actually there is no heaven, hell or Brahma Loka out there. It's all about consciousness, realization, Brahma Jnana. Right. But never make the mistake of thinking there is no heaven, there is no hell but there is this world and there is this body. That is materialism. That is materialism. <laughs> Advaita Vedanta says there is, it starts with before denying heaven and hell, it first of all, deny your own body, negate your own body-mind. There are appearances in consciousness. Then you go on to negate heaven, hell and um, God and all of that, but not before that. Otherwise, what will happen is, if I negate, oh, Advaita has told me, this, actually, ultimately, there is no heaven, there is no God, um, but um, in my subconscious, there is very much there, the reality of this world, reality of this body, and the reality of this little mind which tortures me, that is very much there. Then you are stuck. Then it is gross materialism. Gloria says, has the movie that we are experiencing now, our current life, already completed, and we are just watching it somehow? That's an interesting question, because there is a perspective. First of all, God's perspective. And there are enlightened beings, for whom, from whose perspective, our movies are complete. They know. What we have, where we have come from, what is going to happen to us—they know it. Uh, This, there are cases. There's one monk who talks about Swami Brahmananda. So Swami Brahmananda once asked him to uh, render some service, massaging his feet while the Swami was lying down. And suddenly, this person—he says, when I start massaging his feet, I went into a kind of a trance, and suddenly I became self-aware, and I saw Swami Brahmananda was sitting up, and um listening carefully and then suddenly he looked at me and said what what did you say and he appeared to lose all interest and he went um, lay back again as if he was not concerned and later he said i i understood what he was doing was reaching into some realm and asking me questions who are you Um, where have you come from what will you do in this life what are you going to experience what sort of life are you planning to have here What what an uh, unsettling thing that it's all done for us. I'll share a little interesting incident of my own. All this is non-Vedantic. From Yama's level, from the Upanishad's level, they'll think what nonsense you are all discussing. Uh, You are pure consciousness. That's it. Whether it's predicted in what is predictable or not, is it a movie that's played out? You are interested in the movie, but be interested in the light in which the movie is appearing, the screen in which the movie is appearing, the plot of the movie is not interesting. But anyway, here is my own little experience. Before I um, became a monk, but I already decided, I was a student. So we had this very perceptive psychology teacher who was guiding us through an intense um, six-hour session, all the students. Uh, he was an expert in Various advanced psychological techniques, uh, transactional analysis, and some other things. So when it came to be to me to be guided through a particular um, analysis, I was on. There was a hot seat. You have to sit there, and he searches. He subjects you to very searching questions. He um, said, "So, kind of a, a hypnotic regression. So, what do you uh, see?" I still remember that. I said, "What do you see?" I said, "I see." Um, a ray of light a beam of light and then he says where does it go as it goes and, and it, very soon it sharply moves upwards and then he said then there's a vast burst of light and then uh, he said to me that um, is that what you see please meet me in my office so I went to his office afterwards and he said see um, that is the interpretation that we have is, is for death, that you're going to die very soon. This means that you're going to die. I said, look, I haven't told anybody, but on such and such day, I'm going to give up everything and become a monk in the next few weeks. I'm going away. Is this how the mind is interpreting? And then he said, could be. And he was also very surprised to know that I was going to become a monk. Uh, so it was a business school. So there were very few people becoming monks in the business school. <laughs> So he told me that uh, he, he was a Jesuit priest, a very learned old man. Uh, he told me that, uh, so when you do become a monk, after two months, write to me to let me know that, let me know you are all right. So I did that. Uh, I wrote back to him saying that I'm still alive here. So it probably meant, so it's somewhere deep inside our minds, maybe subconscious level, superconscious level, I don't know what it is, at one level, we already know what's happening in our life and what's going to happen to us. It's all there. So This experience showed me that. Next time I met him was many years after I'd become a monk. I went to the seminary where the Jesuits were trained. And I told one of the Jesuit monks that I knew a Jesuit father long ago when I was a student, Father John Prabhu. And he said, oh, he's here. I said, he's here. I thought he was very old. And at that time he was suffering from terminal cancer. I thought he must have passed away by now. Oh, he said, oh, he's here. Uh, and then he, we walked to the graveyard. And there we went to the grave where uh, John Pahu was there. So I they stood there for some time and prayed for him. So uh, quite an amazing old man. But you see, that means at some level the mind knows what's going to happen to this individuality. From a Vedantic perspective, what nonsense. Forget that. Something or the other will happen in the movie. But it's the movie that's the most important thing. And you are not that little character. That's the point that Yama is making. Does the Jivan Mukta feel the pain of other people as his own pain? Yes. Yes. So then that's awful. We can't bear our own pain if you start feeling the pain of everybody else. But remember, the Jivan Mukta is also above it. The Jivan Mukta can easily... Say, I am the witness of all of that and these are appearances in me, the consciousness. All right, how time flies. Let's uh, bring it to a close here. Om Shanti 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 hari Om Tatsat Shri Ramakrishna Krishna Namastu